Oh God, as always, we seek you to help us to hear your voice and your word, that it would be not merely words, but we would hear as our King speaking, our God and our Savior. And as we've sung and prayed and read, we are reminded of that great and glorious reality that is not only something we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday or Easter, but it is that resurrected reality that you are the risen Lord, you are our life, you are our King, you are our returning God. It is that reality that animates us, that drives us in all that we do in life, for it should. That great reality that we have been set free from the bondage of our sin, from the guilt that we bore because of your work on our behalf on the cross. We do ask now that as we come to this glorious passage that you would remind us of these things and fill our hope with hearts with the hope that Peter himself is addressing in this wonderful epistle. We ask you to come and meet with us as we have gathered to meet with you. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, as we consider this morning the sovereign mercy of resurrection hope. The sovereign mercy of resurrection hope. Now, hope is essential to the Christian life. It's not only essential to the Christian life, it's a simple, uh, essential simply to being a human being. Indeed, every human needs hope. It's the absence of hope that leads to despair, the desire to give up when somebody wants to end their life or take some drastic means. It is because they have essentially reached the end of their rope. They've lost hope. Everything before them is gloom and only gloom. Outside of the gospel... There is no ultimate hope. For true hope must be, it must be grounded in something that is transcendent, that is bigger than this world. Something that is beyond the ever-changing circumstances and the uncertainties that fill our lives as we live this side of heaven. And God does provide something more. He provides for us the unshakable certainty of His present and future grace. And it is a grace that is secured for us who know Him in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we, as well as those to whom Peter is writing, need this hope and need this confidence. They, in a particular sense, because they are suffering. They are experiencing in a way that we have not yet experienced the hostility of the world, though we have brethren around the world who are. And so Peter is writing to suffering Christians. And it is a suffering that these Christians are experiencing now, but it is one that will only increase in the years ahead. As the persecution, particularly at this point, from the Roman government would increase and many would pay a price that was very high with their own lives. And yet, they love Christ and they want to live faithfully for Him in this world, he says in verse 8 of 1 Peter 1, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
So Peter essentially wants to encourage these believers to be faithful, to be faithful to the Christ whom they love, to be faithful to Christ in a hostile world, knowing that it is going to come with a cost. It's going to come with a cost. And though he's encouraging them, I want to make a footnote here that how he encourages them. He encourages them with a biblical encouragement, with a biblical encouragement. Unlike the kind of encouragement that we often can give to someone who is suffering or somebody who is going through difficult times, it's well-meaning encouragement, it's well-intended, but it isn't really the kind of encouragement that gives us strength of heart. Hang in there a little bit longer. It's going to all work out in the end. I'm sorry that you have to go through this. It's well-intended, but it does not give us the kind of hope that Peter does In this passage, he gives us encouragement that points those who are suffering back to the glory of God, back to those things that are true encouragement, those things that for a Christian are what our hope is truly grounded in, and that is the saving work of God in Christ authenticated by his resurrection. He points us to God, who he is, and what he has done for us. And this is our solid ground on which we stand as believers. And this is going to be the focus of our passage this morning, where Peter addresses God's sovereign mercy that has unshakably grounded Christian salvation and hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So read with me, beginning in verse 3. Well, actually, let's begin in verse 1 and read all the way down to verse 5. Though we'll be looking specifically only at verses 3 through 5. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to just point out three things this morning from this passage. First, God's sovereign mercy. First is God's sovereign mercy. Look back up at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy. And go ahead and stop there. Because it's important first to establish not only the acts of God, but the character of God out of which He acts. For it is ultimately the character and the nature of God that is the real encouragement to His people and makes His sovereignty our confidence. It's an infinite power. It's omnipotence governed by infinite mercy to His own. Notice that He says it is a Trinitarian mercy. He hints at a Trinitarian mercy. It is a mercy that comes from the Father and the Son of the Spirit, though here he emphasizes that of the Father. And he calls him blessed. And that idea is simply to be worthy of praise, to be worthy of honor, to be worthy of glory. 
But it is a blessedness that he specifically attributes here to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not an uncommon phrase used in the New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read this morning Jesus' own statement that he is returning to his God and Father as he is to encourage them that that same God is their God and Father. It is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Father who was revealed in the Son. John 1 says that He came that He might reveal Him. The Son became flesh that He might reveal the Father. And He told His disciples, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And in fact, God is only known to us in His relationship to the Son who has revealed Him by the Spirit. But I want to ask the question here, why does He focus on the Father? Why does He focus on the Father? He focuses on the Father because there is a structure in the relationships of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that is reflected in their work of redemption. In other words, how they eternally relate to one another as Father, Son, and Spirit is shown by the part that each one plays in their work of redemption. The persons of the Godhead, in other words, did not get together before creation and say, okay, who wants to be the Father, who wants to be the Son, and who wants to be the Spirit? Take our roles, divide up, and then go out and do redemption. No, what they did in redemption is reflective of who they are eternally. And what we see is that the Father planned our redemption. The Son submitted to this plan in love for the Father and accomplished it. And the Spirit enabled him to do that and then applied the work to those given to him by the Father. So what Peter, this is essentially what he said in verse 2. Look, he said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. And so he is magnifying here the completeness and the fullness of our redemption by acknowledging the role of each person of our triune God in accomplishing that redemption for us. But the emphasis here is placed on the Father because it's the Father who planned the mercy, it's the Father who sent the Son, and it's ultimately the Father who gets the glory through the Son by the Spirit. And he says, not only is it the Father here who is blessed, the Father who is the focus of all that He would do for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but He does so motivated by an infinite mercy. What He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, His great mercy, now mercy is probably best defined in this way, God's goodness to those who are in need. God's goodness to those who are in need or those who are in distress or those who are in trouble. And in that way, God's mercy is distinguished from God's grace, which could probably best be defined as God's goodness to those who are deserving only of wrath, to those who are under judgment. Here he's saying or emphasizing God's mercy, God's mercy. It's God's mercy to us in our condition of sin, God's mercy to us in our condition of being guilty and rightly under His wrath. But it's God's mercy that is shown in salvation. And it's God's mercy that Peter here places before these persecuted believers and us. Mercy on their pitiful and their needy position. And it's that's the kind of truth that a suffering Christian needs to hear. 
that every Christian needs to hear that God is merciful. He is not unaware of our plight. He's not unconcerned about our suffering. He knows the difficulties that they have. Indeed, he suffered them himself of living in a fallen world and living in a world that is hostile to the truth, that is hostile to his people, that is hostile to all that is represented in them as they serve him and live for him in this world. So in other words, he focuses on God's mercy as if to say that God who was merciful to you in your salvation is the God who will be merciful to you in your suffering. Though there are difficulties, fears, doubts, and uncertainty, remember the infinite mercy of God. You know, he beautifully pictures this actually in chapter 5. There he says to them, he reminds them that these are Those who, because of their suffering, could experience anxiety in this world. He says, casting all of your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Yes, He knows that you're going to be anxious. Yes, He knows that there's a faith that at times can be faltering. Yes, He knows that there are fears and doubts that at times will fill, fill your heart. But God is merciful and He cares for you and He is not unaware of your suffering. But we nearly need to understand that a level deeper than that. That is precious and that comforts our soul. But he says more than this. And he reminds us, and we labeled this point on purpose, it is a sovereign mercy. It is a sovereign mercy. It's an infinite mercy with infinite power to exercise it. It would be little comfort to us to say that God is infinite in power. He is unlimited in His power. He can do all things if it were not a power that were tempered and governed and motivated by His mercy to His own. And this is important because these people are not suffering randomly. They're not suffering randomly. They are suffering according to the plan of God. They're suffering according to the plan of God. Look what he says in verse 6. In this, at the end of the great encouragement that he's going to give them, through five, through verse 5, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You have been distressed by various trials. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. He reminds them again. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. It's God's will that it would be that way. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 19. He says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In doing what is right. In other words, he reminds these believers not only that their suffering is understood and recognized and cared for by your merciful God who has saved you, but this God has also ordained that you suffer. Your suffering is not opposed to His mercy. It is not a contradiction to His mercy. It is indeed part of the mercy that He displays to you as He upholds you, as He encourages you, as He enables you to endure it to His glory. 
And we would learn from this. God has sovereignly ordained their suffering. He said to the Thessalonian believers, if God, that it was a blessing of God that He has granted them to suffer for the sake of His name. That was a gift of God to them. It was strengthening grace in them and maximizing God's glory in them, which was ultimately even for their good. He sovereignly ordains, beloved, what we endure in our life. And the suffering that He brings... The difficulties that he brings and the trials that he brings are not outside of his mercy. They are a part of his mercy and a way that he grows us nearer to himself to trust him, to lean on him, to be weaned from ourself. And that's important because we can forget that in the midst of the difficulties. We can ask, as these could have asked in the midst of their suffering, God, why are we suffering? Why are we suffering? It is because God has so ordained it, and yet His mercy is not absent. It can be present in the midst of the suffering. And so He takes it even a little bit farther for us, Peter does. And He notes not only the sovereign mercy of God, but the sovereign work of God. He says, Who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading or will not fade away. In other words here, the first expression of that mercy of God is that He has brought us into His family. He's given us life. He's given us hope. He's given us an inheritance in His Son. Let's notice the first of these. He has given us life. He has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. In other words, He's brought us who know Him from death to life, from damnation to blessing, from darkness to light, by granting us this grace of the new life and the new birth in His Son. And this act then stands at the very heart of His mercy, and it is the context out of which everything else that He's going to reveal we obtain in this mercy, out of which it flows, this new life that we have received in Christ, if you know Him. And there is an objective sense to this, and there is a subjective sense to this. The objective sense would be, it is being born again into this complete reality that has to do with the kingdom and everything that he is ushering in for those who know him. It is subjective in the sense that it is an internal reality. It is through this new life that we are related to God in a new way as children, as sons and daughters, and that through this relation we receive encouragement and hope. Now, interestingly, this term, born again, is used only by Peter and only here and one other time. Actually, in verse 23 of chapter 1. In a similar connection, he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, the living and the enduring Word of God. And here then, then in verse 23, he focuses on the instrumentality, as it were, of how we are born again. It is through the message of the gospel, through the word of God. Here in verse uh, verse 3, he's focusing on the reality that God has granted us this gift. That he has granted us this gift. And the basic meaning is that of being granted spiritual life. There is a first birth, of course, that we... in all experience physically, which brings us into the full reality of life in this world. It is a physical birth. 
But there is a spiritual birth that he speaks that needs to happen to every sinner. And it's a birth that brings one who was dead into the full experience of spiritual life. As a matter of fact, he picks up on that image in chapter 2, or verse 2. He says, like newborn babies, like those who have received this spiritual birth and our newborn babies have been awakened to new realities and to new hopes and to new loves and to new desires and to new dreams and to new affections and to new commitments. Your babies, though you may be old in this world, you are a baby in Christ, but it is a life that God has given to us by His grace. It is to be born into the family of God. And it is something that God has done. Now while this term is used only here in First Peter, the concepts throughout Scripture, and we're going to spend more time on the idea of regeneration next week. But here I want to make just a couple of observations from Peter's usage. First of all, and this is important for us to understand, that we needed to be born again. If you were to say that, and particularly in our now unchurched culture, that you are a born-again believer, that you need to be born again, they're going to look at you asconce and a little bit perplexed. And the reason is, is because we first need to understand our condition. And the reality is, is that we were conceived in sin. Conceived in sin. Psalm 51.5, David prays, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. We have an inherited guilt from Adam and a nature that is fallen. If you have not been born again, then you are not a part of God's family. You are in that condition of in sin. And it also has the picture of being a part of a family. As a matter of fact, Paul said this, In Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin because of our love for sin, because of following after the course of this world, and so on. And he says, and you were by nature, in verse 3, children of wrath. Children of wrath. And that's who we are by our nature. And so for Peter here to say, and for us to understand, that though we were children of wrath, that God has by an act of His own goodness and for His own good pleasure, caused us to be born again. Born into this life of the family of God. And so notice with that that it is directly attributed, it is directly credited to the work of the Father. He has caused us. And the illustration works. It works. You cannot look at a child that's born to a mother and that child had nothing to do with their birth. They simply were brought into this world. They were brought into this world. They did not choose to come into this world. They did not choose the circumstances at which they would be brought into this world. They chose nothing. They simply were born. They were born. And that is an apt picture. It is because of the work of the Father. And it's solely a sovereign work of the Father. As a matter of fact, look at what he says at the verse of in verse 1. Who are chosen. Now grasp that. Because not everybody in the world has experienced this birth. Not everybody has experienced this birth. There are those who die not having experienced this birth. And are children of wrath and die as children of wrath. But he says no. That's not so with you, if you know Him. God has done something wonderful. He's done something amazing. He's given you life. He's brought you into His family. He has made you one of His own. He has chosen you. He's chosen you. 
Now we'll look at this more next week. It is also something that he accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And again, we see this great reality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together to accomplish this complete and glorious salvation. Notice what he says also. That this gift of life comes through his raising Jesus from the dead. He says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. From the dead. In other words, this new life is directly attached to the resurrection of Jesus. Now I've already stated this earlier that it is the Father who planned. You see, it's the Father who's working. It's the Father who ordained. And it's the Father who is the source out of which this work of redemption is being accomplished And it is the Father then who rose Jesus also from the dead. That's why I labeled this under the work, the sovereign work of God. It could be the sovereign work of the Father. The resurrection of Jesus is continually attributed to the work of the Father. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but let me just read to you a couple of verses. One, actually, for time's sake. Verse 24 in Acts chapter 2, just listen. Peter is preaching his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he says this. Speaking of Christ, he says, You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God raised him up. God the Father raised him from the dead. Now, some of you may be thinking of John 10, 17, and 18. He says, I lay down my life, and I take it again. And this is indeed true. But he then says, it is a commandment that I have received from my Father. From my Father. Now, in what ways, then, does he give us life through the resurrection of Christ? And this is, in some ways, a difficult statement. But let me suggest to you at least three ways, briefly. How does he give us life? First, it is that the resurrection of Christ shows that death is defeated. It shows that death is defeated. Death should cause in us a great fear apart from Christ. The world wants to play it off, make a joke out of it, ignore it, find ways to drown it out of their thinking. But the reality is that death should cause us a great fear. We should drive by a cemetery which are scattered throughout the land and every time realize that that is a consequence of sin. That each one of those tombstones represents a baby born to a family. A life lived all through the course of life, depending on how long they lived. And it is a life that came to an end because death is a result of sin. And if Jesus were still in the grave, then death would be the victor, wouldn't it? And not life. Death would be the victor. And as Paul makes the argument, we would still be dead in our sin and we would still be bearing the weight of the guilt that we inherited from Adam. But the resurrection was victorious. So Christ's resurrection was victorious over death. Secondly, it's through the resurrection that Jesus ascended back to the Father from where He sent the Holy Spirit. From where He sent the Holy Spirit who is the giver of life to His people. Now he mentions it in John chapter 7. Let me just turn back to Acts chapter 2 and just listen to this. You don't need to turn there. Acts chapter 2 verse 33. He says this, Therefore, having been speaking of Christ, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
In other words, it is by the Spirit who comes that this life would be fully realized in those given to the Son by the Father. It is that life that within them would be a stream, a flow of living water by the Spirit of God and all because He purchased for us salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit through His work of redemption, ultimately in His resurrection. Moreover, it is through our union with Christ, thirdly, who is risen and by the Holy Spirit that we have life. Paul said we have died with Him, we have been raised with Him, that we might walk in newness of life. So this is God's mercy to believers, to grant us spiritual life, a second birth into His family, and it is one that is rooted and grounded in the resurrection. And so he takes it even further. He's building one thing on the next on the next, and he says this. He says this, that it is a... It is a A confidence that we have because we have been born again to a living hope, a living hope, and it has been to and it is to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Now this is wonderful. This is absolutely wonderful. Every person, as we said at the beginning, needs hope, especially those who are suffering, especially those who are feeling the, feeling the brunt of living in a fallen world. And as a matter of fact, one of the great tragedies of the modern movement of counseling is that hope is removed. When you, we as believers, encourage one another, one of the things that we want to do right up front is give one another hope. You want to give the counselee hope. That there is a promise of God that is trustworthy. If you are a Christian, that God has plans and resources for you that are trustworthy. That change is possible. When the world uses words like addiction and disease and illness, there's no hope in that. There's no answer to that. There's no gospel hope in that. That's just something you're afflicted with throughout life. But here, the gospel offers hope. Not to just cope with the difficulties, not to just manage the fear of suffering, but to have a confident and a victorious hope. And it is a hope in the resurrected Christ. And it's a hope that's greater than whatever we suffer in this world. What is hope then? I think the simplest definition is this. Hope could be defined as to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. I like that. To look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. It's to have confidence in deliverance from present suffering, the promise of help or receiving something for which the heart longs. The very idea of hope is that we don't have it yet, but we think that we will. We might. There is some confidence that it will come about. But we must be careful here then to distinguish what hope Peter is talking about and the hope that God speaks of and the way that we temper, uh, usually use it in our language. Or common language. Christian hope is fundamentally different than how we often use it. In common usage, which you can see this usage in Scripture, we won't turn to those passages, but there is the idea of this, that there is within the thing that I hope for also some possibility of failure. Some chance that it may not come about as I hope that it does. In other words, hope as it's often used expresses what is desired, even expected, but cannot be said to be absolutely 100% certain. And we use it often to focus on the desire of the individual more than the actual thing itself. 
However, the way Peter uses it, the biblical hope that we have of Christ, as Christians is that of certainty. And its certainty comes because it's fully grounded in the promises of God, which have all been gloriously displayed before us as accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Christ. It is proven, purchased, and fully obtained in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews could say they are an anchor to the soul grounding, anchoring us in the promises of God. In other words, because of the resurrection, there is no possibility that one word of God or one promise of God will fail to us who are His children. There's no possibility that it will not be fulfilled. And the Christian hope is confident of that certainty and that reality that everything Christ purchased for us in salvation will be fulfilled. And this hope then becomes a source of encouragement, a source of joy. It should, when we lay a hold of those promises, it becomes a source of stability and righteousness in an unstable and an unrighteous world. Matter of fact, he says this over in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who what? Ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why would they need to give an account? It is because a Christian lives with a hope that is so transcendent, so confident, so joy-producing in the most unlikely circumstances that it's noticeable to the world, or it should be, that it's noticeable to the world. Why are you not anxious? It is because we can say we have a hope, and it is a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Christ. So much to say there, but go on to the next thing. It's a living hope. He says it's a living hope. Again, this is incredibly rich and full expression. It speaks of being alive. That which is living and active. It is our very spiritual life. He says over in chapter 4 verse 2 that we come to Christ as a living stone. Not a dead stone. A living stone. Because He's resurrected. We in Him are also in verse 5 living stones being built up into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. It is a living faith. It is a living life. It is a living hope that we as Christians have. It speaks of the hope as a present and real experience of believers that fuels us, that animates how we live in this world. It is a hope within a Christian that cannot be defeated and it cannot be taken away. And guess what? It is a hope within Christians that doesn't diminish or shouldn't in difficult circumstances of life, but actually only pushes us to a greater reliance on that hope and realization of it. Does that sound crazy? It does to those who don't know this hope. But listen to what Paul says. Just listen. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction and by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
And so these believers that he's writing to have such a grounding and such an anchoring in hope that their trials and the fears and the doubts that they had aren't driving them away, but they're actually driving them to a greater joy and a greater anticipation and a greater confidence in everything that God has accomplished for them in Christ. And it's not attached from the word we won't turn there, but Romans 15, 3 through 4, He is a God of hope who gives us hope in part by all the things that were written for us that we might have hope and encouragement. So there's a fundamental difference between the way a Christian speaks of their hope and a non-Christian speaks. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 2, 12, he says, Before Christ you were without hope in this world. And so a Christian does not live in despair over the way that things are going. We can have disappointments in life, but we should not have despair. Because we have a hope. We have a hope that is transcendent. And we have something that the world does not have. And he unfolds this even more. Look at what he says. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And not only to a living hope, but also to an inheritance. To an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Again, this is wonderful. It's wonderful. The basic idea of an inheritance is something received from another, usually upon the condition of the person's death, right? Family inheritance. You wait for grandma so-and-so to die so you can get the house and the silverware and so on. It is an inheritance. It is something that is coming to us. It is something that we will receive. It is also based on the death. I mean, the death of Christ. A Christian inheritance is based then on the death of Christ. But more importantly, not only his death, but his resurrection. And this is because our inheritance as Christians is really participating in Christ's inheritance. It's really His inheritance. It's what He has as the Messiah that we get to participate in. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 8, 17. He says this in verse 16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. He says the same thing in Galatians 4, 7. It is an inheritance that we have with Christ who has accomplished it for us. Who has accomplished it for us. Now what is this inheritance then? Let me just give you a few pictures of it. Matthew 19, 29, he says this. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Eternal life which is so much more than just not going to hell. We sometimes as Christians have that view of salvation. That's not the fullness of salvation. It is eternal life. It is the fullness of being reconciled to God through Christ and the fullness of experiencing everything that Christ has accomplished for us. It's everything related to our salvation. That's what we will receive, eternal life. He says in Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. It's his kingdom. It's eternal life. 
He says in Hebrews 6.12, Show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not become sluggish, but be imitators of those who through patience inherit the promises. All of the promises of God are what we will inherit. Eternal life is what we will inherit. The kingdom of God is what we will inherit. And it is an eternal inheritance. He says in Hebrews 9.15, For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place of the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. You can say even more. In Ephesians 1.18, he says there that the church, we are his inheritance. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is it that we inherit? Essentially to rule with Christ, to internally enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, to participate in his life and the untold riches of glory and fellowship with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit for all eternity on a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness reigns. That's the ultimate end. And he describes it even more to increase our confidence. He says it is an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible and unfading or will not fade away. In other words, it's as certain as the word of God and the risen Christ himself. Look at these briefly, what he's saying here. It's incorruptible. That means to say it is not subject to death or decay. It's impervious to corruption or death. Everything on this earth is susceptible to death and to decay, but not the inheritance. As a matter of fact, it's a term that Paul uses in Romans 1.23 to describe God himself. He says he is the incorruptible God. Not like the false gods of this world and the idols of men. He is the incorruptible God. In 1 Timothy 1.17, he describes him like this. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, same word for incorruptible, invisible, and the only God. It is an inheritance that is utterly impervious, impervious to decay or any effect of the fall. Because when we receive this inheritance, the presence of sin is utterly removed. Utterly removed. And guess what? It was mentioned already, but God is going to fit us with bodies to enjoy this internal inheritance. In other words, we won't get it for a moment, but forever. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, that we, in a moment of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, same term, and we will be changed. Because Christ is risen. We receive resurrected bodies to enjoy this eternal inheritance with Him. He has done everything for us. It is an inheritance that He says is undefiled. Undefiled, incorruptible, undefiled. That means without moral impurity. He uses that term in Hebrews 13.4 to speak of the marriage bed. Let it be kept pure and undefiled in the sight of God. He says in James 1.27 that we have a pure and an undefiled religion that's demonstrated in how we care for the weak. It speaks of also moral purity, holiness that reflects the character of God. That's our inheritance. There's no spot or stain of anything immoral or impure there, either in us or outside of us. There is no sin in us in our inheritance when we have our resurrected bodies, nor outside of us. And it's holy because it's the possession of the Holy One. 
He says in Hebrews 7, 23, For it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who forever holds his priesthood for us. And we share that. John tells us that we will see him as he is because we will be like him. It's an undefiled inheritance. Because Jesus is undefiled, holy, and innocent. Because we are in union with Him. Because He was risen from the dead. Because the Spirit of God has applied His work to us. Brought us into the family by faith. We participate in this inheritance in all of its wonder and glory. He says, thirdly, it's unfading. It's unfading. The idea here is of pertaining to not losing the wonderful, pristine character of something. Or not losing pristine quality or character. Isn't that beautiful? That's an amazing and amazing reality. It's a strikingly beautiful term. Everything here loses its glory. Everything here loses its glory. The most magnificent structure, the most beautiful person, eventually gets old and decays and dies or shows the effects of wear and of age and the eroding influences of this world. It loses its beauty. It has to constantly be fixed up and made beautiful again. But not so our inheritance. Matter of fact, he says this in verse 24 of 1 Peter. All flesh is like grass. All of its glory is like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers. And the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Everything that's glorious here will one day not be glorious. Everything that's wonderful here and magnificent here will one day not be magnificent and not be glorious. But not our inheritance. It is unfading. That is to say this, that in heaven, it is a place of such beauty, luster, and glory that will never diminish, not only externally in itself, but it will never diminish in the delight it brings to God's people. It is a glory that is unfading, an inheritance that is unfading. One said this, I like this, the attractiveness of the inheritance will never diminish, nor will it lose its charm for Christians. You're never going to get bored of the glory and the beauty of heaven. Never, never. It is unfading, unfading. The beauty and glory of heaven will always be an unending delight to us who are there. It will forever shine with the undiminished brightness of God's glory, the unending joy of holiness, and the unabated happiness of love of God for us and us for Him and for each other who dwell there. That's heaven. It's unfading. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. And it will not fade away. That's the opposite of everything we know here. Everything. Paul said this world is groaning and we know it and we are groaning along with it. And beloved, if you get this and as we grow as a Christian and begin to understand this more and more, guess what? The things in this world grow strangely dim, don't they? They become less desirable. They bring us less joy. They are less appealing. This is not an advocation for asceticism, but it is to say it's better to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot be destroyed than to store up treasure here. As Jesus said in Matthew 6. Now let's look at this last point quickly. In just a couple of minutes. We also have a sovereign guarantee from God. A sovereign guarantee from God. We have the sovereign mercy of God. We have a sovereign work of God that guarantees for us an inheritance. And here is that guarantee. That God has secured it for us. He says in verse 4. It is kept in heaven for you. He uses a form of the verb here that makes very clear it is forever kept. It is secure. Look what he says over in verse 18. 
If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during your time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. It is bound up in Christ, and it is something that cannot be taken away. God has planned it, God has secured it, God keeps it, and God preserves it for us. Very similar to Jesus' words in John 14 where he says, I go to prepare a place for you. If we're not so, I would have told you, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you and it will be ready for you when I come to receive you again. Notice what else he says. It is in heaven. It's in heaven. It's not a part of this world and it could not be a part of this world. The Christian's inheritance could not be a part of this world. Why? Because this world is still under the curse of sin. It's under the curse of sin and the holiness and the beauty and the righteousness and the glory of the kingdom is something other than what we see right now. Oh, we partake of it. We partake of part of it and parts of the joy through the relationship that we have with Christ and the Father by the Spirit. But the kingdom that is coming is not a part of this world. It's kept in heaven until that proper time. And notice what he says. It is for you. It's for you. And this is precious. It's not an impersonal inheritance. It's for you. He's saying it's an inheritance for you. For you whom I've given my son. For you whom I've given my spirit. For you on whom I've set my eternal love. It's you. It's yours. I've purchased it for you. And I'm keeping it for you. And guess what else he says? He says, and I'm keeping you to receive it. I'm keeping you to receive it. God not only has secured the inheritance, but he secures us as believers. Look what he says in verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Something is safe only to the degree of the strength and the ability of the one protecting it, right? If you have a weak guard, guess what? Your treasure isn't that safe. But if your treasure is protected by the power of God, as is our inheritance, it is perfectly safe and it is kept. And so are we. How does he protect us? How does he keep us from all harm? Remember, he's saying this to those who are suffering. He's not saying, I'm going to keep you from suffering. That's not what he's saying. I'm not going to protect it in that way. I'm not protecting you that way. I'm protecting you in another way. You are protected, he says, by the power of God through faith. Now, who is the source of this faith? Is it you or is it God? I didn't mention it earlier, but this verb is passive. In other words, it's something that is done to us. We are protected by God who does this to us. God has granted us faith. It is a gift from Him. It is a gift. Paul says that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Peter is essentially saying the very faith that he granted you at the entrance into salvation is the same faith he sustains until the full experience of that salvation. It is a gift of God. You exercise it. You must trust Him. You must grow in that. You must be strengthened. But it is a gift that He gave it to you. 
that he gave to you. And if it is a genuine faith that he has given, it is kept and protected by the Spirit of God, and it will be kept until the end by his own power. His own power. This is the great doctrine of the preservation of the saints. If you know Christ, if you have truly called on the name of the Lord, believed in your heart God raised him from the dead, truly turned from your sin to embrace Christ, if you demonstrate a life of trust in him, a desire to confess your sin, walk in righteousness for his name's sake, then you have received the gift of faith and God will keep it. God will keep it. You may falter, you will fail at times, but not ultimately. You may stumble, but you will not be hurled headlong because God keeps your faith. It's glorious. How long will he keep it? For the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation here is another description for inheritance. It has to do with all that God has accomplished for us in Christ. And so how are we to apply this? Well, he says it in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. The main verb of this verse is this. Fix your hope completely. That's the main verb. Girding up your minds, being sober in spirit, is so that you might fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's this resurrection that secures then our confidence. It secures this hope. And it is this hope that we celebrate this morning in the Lord's table. So as you prepare your heart and as the men get ready to pass out the elements, and as you're praying while Ruth is playing... Praise God for this, what he has accomplished for us in the gospel, for the hope that he has given to him. Worship him, adore him, thank him, love him. Commit yourself in fresh ways to live for his honor and glory. And ask yourself also for some if you have this hope. If this hope is what motivates your life. If this hope is what you hang on to because of your trust in Christ and your turning from your own sin to receive his grace. And commit your life to Him. And if it's not, today can be the day it's your hope too. If you pray to Him and deny yourself willingly by trusting Him. To take up your cross and follow Him. To lose your life that you might gain it in Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, so we ask You, we need You to open our eyes. For You to unfold these glories in our heart by Your Spirit. We cannot... Do it simply by the power of our human thinking. We need a spiritual grace of the Spirit to give us the flavor and the sense and the increasing joy and wonder of the hope that we have in Christ. And we ask that you would do that. And we ask that you would be filling our hearts with joy and making our hearts right as we come now to remember your death and your resurrection and your kingdom in your table. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.